You are listening to the VBAC Link Podcast. This is episode number 62. 62. Holy cow. We're so excited. (laughs) We have our friend today. Her name is Christina and she is from Maryland and she has got a great story like all of the stories. We love all the stories. We do. They're They're so amazing. So we're so excited for her to share this story. But of course, we have the review of the week that Julie is going to share with us today. Oh, thanks, Megan. I'm excited about this review. So this is from Mama of Boys 0326 from Apple Podcasts. And she says, I had my first baby after a very unexpected C-section. I had done everything right to try and have a natural birth and things didn't go to plan. When I got pregnant again, only six months after having him, I knew I wanted a VBAC, but I didn't know where to go for information and inspiration and support. This podcast was exactly what I needed. The birth stories and education, information, and inspiration that it provided is amazing. It helped me to know the facts about VBACs and be inspired to be a woman of strength. I'm here to say I just had a successful VBAC and I am so thankful for the inspiration that this podcast has provided to me throughout the whole journey. Mama of boys. Congratulations yes. on your baby, oh on your feedback. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you for such an amazing review. And like she said, congratulations on your VBAC. These reviews, as we always say, really do mean a lot and they touch our hearts. And it's so fun for us to hear these successful stories and the way the things that we're doing are helping you. So right now, before we get into Christina's story, do a solid Pause this podcast, head over to Apple, um, iTunes, or to Facebook, or to Google, and leave us a review. You just may be the next one read on the podcast. And we love those reviews. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Hi, it's Julie here. Did you know we just rebranded our entire company at the end of April and we're really excited about the colors and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I just personally redid our entire set of printable, downloadable VBAC affirmations. Mm -hmm. They come in two sizes, eight by 10 and five by seven for you to print out and hang up in your birth space. And guess what? They're free. You can go online right now to our website, thevbacklink.com, right there on the homepage. Download your free printable affirmations. These are the affirmations Megan and I both used Mm -hmm. during our VBACs. So we wanted to let you know they are rebranded. They are in our beautiful new colors, and we're excited to see how you use them in your birth space. Absolutely. And take pictures. If you have a photographer or have someone take pictures and send us them. We would love to see them in and your birth And share space. them. Yeah, share them. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Christina, are you ready to share your amazing story? Yes, yes. All right. Well, we will turn the time over to you. 
Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I'll just start with my first birth. I finally got pregnant after trying for almost two years and we were due July 7th, 2017. So I was really excited to hopefully have my son on seven, seven, 17. Oh, that would be cool. And I know, right? <laughs> it was so cool. And my youngest nephew was born five, 15, 15. So I was like, Oh, it'd be like a family thing. Like, numbers. Yeah. Um, so I was really excited about that. And I didn't really get too into my pregnancy because I've known a lot of people who had miscarried um, and maybe like later also in the pregnancy. And with my occupation, uh, I'm a flight attendant. And so there's a lot of risks involved with that. And so I just didn't get my hopes up more or less throughout the whole pregnancy. And so I don't think I did as much research and birth education as I could have. Mm -hmm. And it slightly set me up for some of the failures that happened. Granted, I, I read all the traditional books um, that you're supposed to read, like what to expect when you're expecting. And I watched <laughs> the business of being born. And I had a birth education class through my healthcare provider. And I learned the basics, but I didn't know more. And I knew a lot of women who had given birth. My sister had three kids by that point already. And I relied on their information, but they all had very traditional hospital births. Mm -hmm. And no one really explained to me that there could have been more and more information. And so when my labor started, I actually didn't know I was in labor. And I texted my sister and I said, how do you know you're in labor? <laughs> Even though I took all these birth <laughs> education classes, I thought maybe I was having Braxton Hicks because it was July 3rd. And, you know, in my mind, I was going to have him on, on July the 7th. 7th. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, this isn't right. And I had gone to the doctor that morning and she checked me and I was two centimeters and slightly effaced. And I was like, okay, so what does that mean? She's like, well, we'll schedule you for an induction on July 14th. So also in my mind, I was thinking, she thinks I'm going to go two more weeks. So I wasn't prepared. Labor progressed. My sister FaceTimed me and she was like, I think it's time for you to go to the hospital. So I went. And when I got there, the nurse on call hooked me up to the IV right away. And I was pretty much in bed the whole night. It was at 10 p.m. So I was in bed the whole night. And um, she was a little snippy, I guess you can say, with me when I asked to go to the bathroom or to move around because the fetal heart monitor was on. And I didn't know that I could ask for it not to be on. I had no reason for them to continuously monitor or anything. And so I just stayed in bed the whole time, which I think set me up for <laughs> my C-section. And then the shift changed and the nurse, the new nurse that was helping me was awesome. I didn't have a doula. I didn't know what a doula was at that point in time. And she essentially was my doula once I found out what one was. And she was <laughs> awesome. And she was switching me positions. She was trying to help me get my labor progress. And nothing helped. And they broke my waters. And there was light meconium. So I'm starting to freak out. Mm. And the doctor on call is like pretty much telling me that I need a C-section right away. And I wasn't Aww. ready. So they let me try some more. And then I ask for an epidural and I take a nap. And before you know it, it's 29 hours after my labor started and it's time for a C-section because I stalled at eight centimeters and the baby was still high and they couldn't mm. figure out 
what was going on or why, and his heart rate started to drop. So we went in for a C-section, and it was great. It was perfect. I heard a lot of people talk about how they could feel them stitching up after the baby was born, and Mm. I could feel that too. (laughs) And I was freaked out, so they did knock me out for that. And my biggest fear with even having a C-section was I wouldn't be able to breastfeed or, or any breastfeeding struggles because a lot of the women that I knew also had breastfeeding like problems and yep. I didn't want that. And they, they had vaginal births. <laughs> um, and I was like, Oh, I know C-sections and epidurals increase that. So I was nervous about that, but they gave me skin to skin as quickly as possible. And we are actually still breastfeeding at 22 Yay. months. Oh my gosh. So, that's exciting. That's really awesome. Yeah. And Given the fact that it wasn't my birth plan and it didn't go the way I wanted, it took me a while to reconcile with that emotionally, mm-hmm. but I'm so thankful that it went the way it did and I didn't realize how good I had it until researching for a VBAC and learning about other people's birth stories and you know all the different ways that a C-section can happen and general anesthesia and not being a gentle one and not having the spouse there and things like that. So I'm just really grateful for the team that did it, even though I didn't want it. And there were some iffy parts before that during labor. And I guess the most important thing about my VBAC story is that I had a lot of emotional and mental healing to do, not from just having a birth that I didn't want, but Mm -hmm. from childhood mental trauma or emotional Mm -hmm. psychological things. Yeah, that makes sense. I felt like I wasn't a woman. I felt like a failure because I had a C-section and there were a lot of women around me giving birth vaginally. And I was just like, wow, why couldn't I do that? I'm a strong woman. I have ran marathons. I've done all these very strong things, but I couldn't push my baby out. He was nine pounds, four ounces. That may have had something to do with it. It was just his position, but I don't, I mean, you never really know. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that he's healthy in here. And so when I got pregnant, I found out two days after his first birthday and we weren't trying since it took us a little longer than anticipated the first time. We didn't think it would take, you know, up right away. And I was pretty shocked when I found out. And from the get go, from my postpartum appointment the first time, everyone said, I can have a VBAC. I was like, well, what is this word VBAC? And I started looking more into it. And I had a friend from work who was a strong advocate for VBAC and just really supportive and awesome and led me to all the resources that I needed with ICANN and with Facebook support groups. And actually, you had um, Katie who runs the ICANN Instagram. Yes, we love her. Yes. (laughs) So I went to a support group information talk that she was having with um, the doulas in the area and a midwife in their area. And I met her and I talked and got some really awesome information that really made me feel confident in my choice to have a VBAC because the VBAC calculator said I had a 49% chance. Oh, I hate the VBAC calculator. Yeah. Right. It's annoying. And... (laughs) My OB was kind of like, yeah, well, I mean, you know. And I was like, hmm, is that supportive or yeah. tolerant? Yeah. <laughs> and Good for you for even recognizing. Uh, yeah. That's really good. Yeah. 
Well, and since I had all these great resources through Facebook groups in the area, I reached out, and I have an HMO, so my options are pretty limited. I could mm-hmm. switch to another OB. At least I thought my options were limited. Well, it turns out there's a midwife group that accepts my insurance. Yay! And I worked really hard, really, really hard to be seen by them, and I ended up switching in my third trimester, and I got seen by them. And at this point, everything is fine. I didn't realize how much emotional baggage I had. And then, you know, the midwives, they get deep and they really want to, like, help you through all this. And I had a lot more reading to do this time to make up for all the birth education that I missed out on the first time. And in that, I read Ina Mae Gatskin's book. And I just realized there's a lot of things that might hold up my opening and letting the baby fall. And I was worried about that. So I ended up reaching out to a psychotherapist that I read about in Cut Stapled Mended by Roanna Rosewood, which is an awesome, awesome book about her journey. Just so powerful and made me feel so great. And I reached out to the psychotherapist she used because I was like, why not? And she really helped me work through a lot of things. And I talked to her the day before I was induced. And I was induced because a week before, my blood pressure went from completely normal to 150 over 90. And my sister, who I'm relatively close with, is a physician. And her best friend is an OBGYN. And the whole time, she was quite discouraging about me seeing a midwife because she is a doctor and they have their views and she thinks it's more medically necessary if you've had a C-section to be seen by a doctor and not a midwife. And she put a lot of pressure on me and made me feel really bad about my decision, which goes back to like childhood issues. And so talking to the psychotherapist really, really helped me because my blood pressure was so high And my sister was telling me, you're going to have a C-section. And I just wasn't getting the support that I wanted from her. And I I didn't know what to do. And so I worked out all these things through this phone conversation with a psychotherapist in Australia. And it was awesome. My blood pressure dropped to 125 over, I think, 70-something. And I felt more comfortable. And the next day, I felt great. I felt empowered. And I was at 37 weeks at this point. And then I got really sick and I just felt really funny. And I checked my blood pressure at home again and it was really high. So they asked me to come in and the midwife on call at that time just admitted me and was like, okay, you're going to have this baby. And I thought I was just going in for observation. (laughs) I was really nervous when she said that. And I was like, well, what about... Tolak, like, can I try? She's like, oh, yes, yes, this will not affect anything. And then she gave me her VBAC story, which oh, was so empowering. Yeah. And I, I was just was like, amazing. wow. Yeah. yeah. It was, it was great. It was like, I was questioning everything. And then that, I think at that point, that was like, okay, I could do this. And also, I think after talking to the, the psychotherapist, I realized that whatever happens, happens. And it doesn't make me less of a woman. Like, Mm -hmm. I am who I am. I'm strong. I'm powerful. And I still can grow a baby. And there's so many labels that are put on us by society. Yes. 
Such a powerful message matter. that you just gave right there. Yes. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. And um, so I, I go in and they start me on Pitocin and I'm one centimeter dilated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Pitocin starts very slowly, very gently, like they're supposed to. And then there's a shift change because I went in at 10 p.m. And they started at 2 a.m. So the shift change happened at 8. And the other midwife came on. Love her. She's great. And she inserted the Foley bulb to help me expand my cervix. And when they were blowing it up, everything felt fine. Everything seemed fine. And then they, like, took out the syringe that they fill it up with and left the room. And they were like, okay, now we wait. And then it'll, you'll... It'll fall out when you're dilated. And I was like, okay. And then a few seconds later, I hear over the intercom, my labor room and a code. And I just didn't really think anything of it. And all of a sudden, at least a dozen people are in the room and flipping me on my side, giving me oxygen. And like, everyone's kind of rushing. And I just didn't really know what was going on. And then the midwife just like calmly explained to me that the baby had a D-cell and that that is a sign of uterine rupture. So we just wanted to make sure that it's not and that everything's okay. And after, you know, maybe a minute or less, the baby's heart rate was fine. I was fine. Everything they did to remedy the situation worked. Um, And so they had to stop the induction and give me a Pitocin rest. And so I still didn't know what that means. And I hired a doula this time as well. And I also saw a chiropractor And I looked into everything like I wanted to put all my cards on the table to make this successful because I didn't want to think, well, if only I had seen a Mm -hmm. chiropractor or if only I hired Mm -hmm. a doula or if only I did this, if it didn't go as planned. And so the doula was really informative and like helping me. And she's like, okay. So I sent her home (laughs) because I was like, I don't need you here. They're going to start all over again. And I don't, I mean, it's already been, you know, 12 hours or no, maybe it's been like 10 hours at this point. Like go home, see your kids, get some rest. I'll let you know when I need you. Mm -hmm. And she was reluctant to leave, but I kind of like was like, trust me, like trust me on this one. And so she left and then two or three hours later, they started the induction again and a gentle Pitocin induction and the Foley bulb had come out already and I was at like six centimeters. Oh, that's good. And I, I had gotten a lot of rest. I felt really good and the effacement was good. And then it was maybe 7.30 p.m. I'm starting to feel the contractions again. It's like, okay, like it's starting again. This is nice to feel progression in some way. And I go to the bathroom and I see that my mucus plug has come out. And so I told the midwife, she's like, okay, very nonchalant. And then shift change happens and the next midwife comes on. And I let her know, and I was like, so are you going to check me? Because I just, I mean, I haven't been checked since the Foley bulb, and I, I mean, I, I don't really know where I'm at, and I kind of want to know because my doula's not here, mm-hmm. and I don't know if I should call her or not. And she's like, well, she's like, I don't want to check you until you're a little more uncomfortable. I was like, okay, Good. fair enough. Mm-hmm. And I felt really great about that. And then I'm bouncing on the yoga ball, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to call my doula. Because things are picking up really quickly. So 20 minutes from that initial conversation, the midwife comes back in. She's like, yeah, call your doula. 
Um, and do you mind if I check you? Great. Sure. So we get on the table for an exam and unbeknownst to her, my bag is bulging. So she barely inserts her fingers and my water's break. It was great. And, and she was, you know, super apologetic because she didn't mean to. And she's Mm -hmm. like, usually we have a conversation about this. And it's like, well, in my mind, I'm thinking it was going to break on its own in a sure, second if it was yeah. right there and I wasn't ready for what was going to happen next because I was managing my contractions so well and I was like I got this they're strong they're tough like I got this well once my waters broke oh yeah all bets are off the contractions <laughs> were on top of each other and I had no rest Aww. and my doula got there I, I remember telling her I'm like just try and get here before 10 if you don't mind and it was like maybe 9.30 when I, like, had called her or 9.15 or something. Mm-hmm. And my waters got broken at 9.30, so it must have been before 9.30. And so she gets there at, like, 9.50, and I'm, like, asking for an epidural. <laughs> I'm just like, I can't do this. And the whole time I'm saying, I can't, I can't, I can't. And I'm thinking, like, no, you're not supposed to say no, and you're not supposed to say I can't. You're supposed to ride the wave and open up, like, a flower and just, like, let this baby come out. And so I started freaking out. So then I was even more adamant about having an epidural because I couldn't get relaxed enough to, like, get in the right headspace for this. Right. So a lot of things were happening. And they eventually get the anesthesiologist and I get the epidural. And I didn't realize during that time until after I got the epidural, but I was in transition. And I was ready to push as soon as the epidural was in. And I still could feel everything, which was great. I could still move my legs. I could still do everything. But the the feeling was so less intense that it was manageable. And the midwife was like, wow, okay, are you ready to do this? And I was like, oh, okay. I was so shocked because I hadn't been there before. And she's like, do you want me to coach you or do you want to do it? And I was like, well let me try. And then if I'm not doing it right, you can coach me. So I gave about like maybe three pushes on my own and they weren't super effective because I hadn't been there before. I didn't know that I was supposed to continue pushing past like that initial crunch. And I could feel him in my birth canal. And then she's like, okay, you're doing really good. We can see the head push a little harder. So I pushed really hard and his head kind of came out and then slipped back in. And I just remember freaking out because mm-hmm. I've never felt that before. Right. So it took a total of like six pushes and 45 minutes and he just slipped right out. And it was the most amazing feeling. But I didn't feel like more of a woman giving birth vaginally. And I realized it in that moment as well, which actually I think was my journey and was my story is that. I don't need to give birth vaginally to be a woman. And like I said before, like there's labels put on, but you don't have to listen to those labels. They don't apply to everyone and they don't really apply to anyone. Actually, it is totally arbitrary what the labels mean. So I just feel like the journey of emotionally healing from emotional and mental trauma as a child and validating myself and being okay with who I am and what I am 
on my own terms and not on somebody else's terms was more of my journey. And I think the whole time I was preparing for a VBAC, I questioned a lot, like, am I doing this for the health of my child, which, and, and the health of me, like my mm-hmm. physical health, because VBACs are the best way to give birth. Like it has the least amount of risks, even though they say that it doesn't, but a successful VBAC, you know, is the best and a failed one is the worst, I guess. But I didn't want it to be a selfish journey. And I think that's what I had to cope with as well. And I was questioning it the whole time, like, should I just schedule it? Because I have a son that I need to have someone take care of. And I have all these things that need to be planned and, you know, logistics. And so I didn't want to feel like I was doing it for selfish reasons. And I came to terms with that and realized that, yes, maybe it is for selfish reasons, but there's also this backing it up, this, this scientific evidence backing it up. And it's okay to be selfish sometimes. And it's okay to put yourself first. And I think I, in my first birthing experience, I didn't put myself first or my child first. I put the medical staff first. Like I didn't want to inconvenience them by going to the bathroom and having them change the fetal heart monitor. I didn't want to do these things because I didn't want to offend them. It's like, you can't. Like, this is your story, your birth. This is your life. These people, this is their job. And it doesn't matter what you do. Like, you're never going to see them again. So I think knowing that and going into this the second time and having the midwives and having, you know, just the warmth and the emotional support was just very healing and awesome. And the best part for me was, like, the day I was being discharged from the hospital, my door was open. I was waiting for the discharge papers. My husband went to go get the car. And the midwife just serendipitously walks by and looks in the room and she's not even there to like visit me or do anything. She's just walking down the hall and she sees me and we just have this beautiful moment, like without being in the birthing moment, just really reliving it and just having this positive energy. And she was so supportive and just told me, you know, how much I rocked and like just very affirming of who I am as a person and it felt so good and so powering and just amazing that is amazing that's really neat I love how you just explained all of that like doing it for you and your baby and not for anything else or anyone else that's Mm -hmm. really really important it is important and kind of what you talked about earlier too the message you know just how so many women feel that feeling of you know their their bodies failed them and they failed because they were meant to give birth and they don't feel like they did and there's so many feelings out there and so I love that you said like you know what it doesn't matter and you know what your experience is what matters and you know we want to try to get that experience to be the most positive one that it you know possible but you guys you're all women of strength so even if you don't have a VBAC or if you choose C-sections, you are a woman of strength. You carry a child. You birth a child. You feed a child. You raise a child. You put children through many things through life, school, (laughs) activities. There's so many things that um, we are doing. And so it's so important to, to recognize that, that you are a woman of strength no matter how you give birth to your baby. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to quickly 
talk about fetal heart tones because that was, you know, something that you kind of started out with, you know, a big rush into your room. And that can be cause for a lot of stress and uncertainty and a lot of fear even leading into the birth, you know, because now you're thinking, you know, a lot of people may think like, oh my gosh, the baby had this heart tone thing. And now like, what if that happens? And so you're going to be hypersensitive and hyper aware. And so we want to kind of talk a little bit about just a couple different things that we can do to help fetal heart tones. And sometimes it's as simple as turning off Pitocin and giving that baby a break. But sometimes it could be as simple as moving positions or even getting some fluids and hydrating. So we talk about peanut ball a lot in our course, um, our VBAC course, because that is a great tool when you're laying down and can open the um, the pips and the, the pips and the pelvis, <laughs> the hips and the pelvis <laughs> can open things up and allow pressure that sometimes may be being applied to a cord or something like that. So if your baby is having D cells, know that you can say, hey, I want to turn my Pitocin off or hey, I want to get up and move or maybe rotate or sit up or lay down with a peanut ball or you know, do anything like that to really help those heart tones change up. And it's amazing how fast it actually can change um, with a simple move. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about where baby is in relation to the cord a lot of the time. time. I mean, sometimes it's not, but most of the time it's just as simple as getting the baby's head or shoulder or bum off of the Mm -hmm. cord or out of the way of the, um, you know, sometimes the cords between like the uterus and a shoulder. Mm -hmm. And so when the uterus contracts, it squeezes the cord, which drops the baby's heart rate too much, which causes concern for the providers. And so sometimes just switching mom's position um, is exactly the right thing to change the, that relationship with the umbilical cord. Absolutely. Exactly what yeah. exactly what Megan said. Yeah. And another note too is if your baby is having constant fetal drops and you have Pitocin or something, things intervening, you can, like I said, you can really say, I want to stop it. I want to stop this and see what happens. A lot of times your body will just take over. So it's really interesting. But Yeah, absolutely. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.